Kelly, where do you go to seek justice? We must keep this station alive. Alive. WBAI. No justice. This is listener-sponsored, locally controlled, WBAI New York. The time now is 2 p.m. Stay tuned for Trauma Code coming up. Trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. With them shots go bang, keep it top of your brain. Got the headline saying, innocent got slain. This is wrong. Insane, this is not wrong. Man, my D got smoke. Read him his rights. He a dead man walking. Long as he think he is. Teach him how to fix his talking. Know who he think he is. Got how you figure, figure, figure. That's a powerless perspective, but the king is much bigger. What you see when you calling your brother dummy? Calling this dummy brother to set up another sucker. Gave away all your power. Collaborate with a coward. While I'm still here, I wish you peace and good health. People of power. Filled with blood, so where's the love? We're losing dignity in front of the judge. The whole city's on a death watch. Bodies drop, when will it stop? Be more and more among the poor. People die and families torn. We set up to fail and take the fall. They kill you over things not willing to die for. They shoot and stupid is getting out of hand. They stretching out your fan. They stepping out the van. The crazy part about it, they recorded on cam. Damn, what happened to the I'm black and good for the kings and queens and the brown and sugar shots around the hood love. like street signs street wise you'll keep quiet each side for a peace sign welcome back to trauma code on wbai 99.5 in new york city this is dr simon fitzgerald uh my co-host dr cassandra Raphael, can't be in studio today we'll try to get her on the line uh in a little bit um that song that we just heard was from 2017 uh by Von Vargas, it was a collaboration with a bunch of Baltimore artists, including Greenspan, uh, Josh Lay, T.T. the Artist, uh, Ill Conscious, uh, Femi the Dry Fish, Martina Lynch, uh, the boy Blast Prem, uh, in support of the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement, uh, which uh, has been a movement uh, against violence and a movement to celebrate life in Baltimore City, which has recently been rebranded uh, the Baltimore Peace Movement. And we had one of the co-founders on last week, uh, the hip-hop artist Ogun, and uh, we have the pleasure of having on the line today uh, sort of the the front woman, one of the most important people in that movement, if, if I dare say so, Erica Bridgeford. Uh, Erica, are you on the line? Can you hear us? I am here. Hi, Simon. Thank you so much for joining us, Erica. I'm really excited uh, to have you, um, and I think when I first started a podcast uh, when I was living in Baltimore, around the time... Uh, the ceasefire started uh, in 2017. 
um, I did an interview with you, and I went back and listened to it, and the 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 quality of what was of what was said and the music and things was excellent, but the sound quality was nowhere near, nowhere near what we get in this studio. So I'm really excited to have you back. I feel like I've grown up a little bit uh, since Yay. we first spoke. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, and I definitely, um, you know, I just met you in 2017, so I missed the whole backstory that I'm learning about. But I feel like I've seen you grow up uh, as well as as also get to appreciate kind of of your whole story. So. Um, first of all, you know, welcome on the air in New York City. Anything that you want to say to the audience before um, I kind of get into your history a little bit? No, I'm good. I'm just really excited to be here, and I'm very proud of you and everything that you're doing and the way you use your platform. So thank you and continue blessings. Well, thank you. That's, that's um, very kind. Um, and I've talked a little bit about um, the work that I've done uh, with Ceasefire, and, and I really credit you and Ogun and the others in the squad that created that space and what I call that spiritual infrastructure. Um, I'm someone that, you know, I, I was born in New York, but I grew up in Baltimore, and I think a lot of people in a city like Baltimore either have a lot of love or they just need to get out, and maybe sometimes both. Um, but you, I think you guys gave me uh, a way of expressing that love, of showing love for the city. Um, so before we get into what that love has really looked like, um, I want to introduce you to our audience. Um, I think, you know, in Baltimore, you're very well known. And probably in New York, there's a lot of people that know you, but a lot of people that don't. Um, and I, I hope you'll forgive me a little bit of an indulgence. Um, but I have this kind of thesis um, in my mind that you're kind of an Afro-futuristic uh, superhero um, behind the Baltimore <laughs> ceasefire. Before. I've heard that before, so it's, it's good. Okay. Um, and... Uh, and, you know, I, I kind of want to start in the beginning. We'll begin with the end in mind. But um, you've shared with me, and I think in public, kind of a origin story for you. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about who were your parents and what was, what was you know, if, if this was the beginning of the, the, the episode of Black Panther, uh, you know, movie uh, that, that introduces you, what would that um, origin story look like? Okay, so my father um, was a Black Panther at the time, and so I was born in 1972, and so my dad was a um, Black Panther, my mom, um, and they were both teenagers, so when, when they got pregnant, my mom was 15 and my dad was 16 was was 17 so I was born when they were 16 and 18 but the converse I, I am the child that they had a conversation about having at that age so they both at the time um, went to Carver High School in Baltimore they were standing across the street on the bus stop and they had a conversation about wanting to have a boy who was going to change the world and so that was their intention when they you know, had sex to have me. <laughs> so so they literally called me into being. Um, and so when I was born, um, in 1972, there was not a name for what my birth injury was. Um, the name didn't come until later on in the 90s. And so um, what my mother describes is in while she was in labor she could hear me screaming on the inside and so she describes it as like a muffled scream that became 
you know, a very audible scream once I came out of, of her. So I came into the world yelling at the top of my lungs. I came and then I, I had a, um, so on my right arm, I had, um, the, like right beneath my elbow down to, you know, my hand, that was all a dead limb. So the top of my arm was okay down to my elbow and a little bit beneath, but the rest of it was, was a dead limb. And then on my left hand, um, my index finger was missing and on my thumb and whatever that second finger is called right beside your index finger both of those fingers had um, cuts in them where it looked like something had they're called restrictions and so it looks like like a, a permanent rubber band mark you know like something was eaten into my fingers um, it turns out it's called amniotic band syndrome and so they had to remove, um, so I had to have an amputation at birth to remove the dead limb. And I found out later, in my 40s actually, that that is the reason I was yelling in pain. Mm. Because when I was inside of the womb, so the dead, a dead limb is, I'm sure you know, like the most painful thing a human body can experience evidently. And so when I was in the womb, there wasn't enough oxygen for me to feel that I had a dead, dead limb. But as I was being born, there's oxygen all in the birth canal. And so now I'm suddenly feeling that there's a dead limb on my body. And that's what the screaming was all about. And then um, I was low birth weight and I, I had all of these problems, some of my legs and feet as well. Um, and so I had to have surgeries that had me with casts on my, both of my legs from my ankles up to the top of my thighs until I was, I think, almost two years old, like one and a half. So I was talking at five months old, but I did not learn to walk until <laughs> I was almost two because wow. even when the cast came off, I was afraid to walk. And on the day I was born... I, so I was born at 8 o'clock in the morning. My dad got to the hospital close to 8 o'clock at night, and I had not eaten all day. So they were just very worried about whether or not I was going to survive. And when my father got there, he held me and looked at me and said, Girl, what you doing making all of this noise? And he gave me a bottle, and that was the first time I ate. And so, you know, that's something he never lets my mom forget. Wow. So you gave us uh, a lot to think about, and, and definitely, you know, that amniotic band syndrome basically you know it's like a, a scar tissue or something wrapping around the limb and not letting it get the circulation yeah. so you know in in that origin story in your mythology the way i interpret that is you had to fight for your survival even before you were born you know you came out yeah. throwing punches uh just for the world <laughs> to give you space to breathe basically That's, um, that is absolutely true um yeah. so and and to back up even a little bit more uh one thing we skipped a little bit in the story you told last time is uh, is your name. What what are the you know? Oh, oh what is yeah, the meaning behind your name? name? So when I when they so when they decided they wanted to have a boy, they already had a name picked out for that boy. And so had I been born a boy, my name would have been Malcolm Patrice Thomas. And so Malcolm after Malcolm X, and my middle name would have been Patrice after Patrice Lumumba. 
Um, because I was born a girl, that did not deter my parents from saying, you know, from believing that I was a being who was going to be impactful and helping to change the world. And so they named me, um, my first name is Erica and my second name is Angela. So Erica after Erica Huggins, who was a Black Panther at the time and has gone on to just, she's an amazing activist in the re-entry space and, um, um, justice around police accountability and all of that kind of stuff and my middle name is Angela after the infamous Angela Davis so it is not lost on me and so the last since the last time I've talked to you I've had a chance to think about this particular thing because um, had I been born a boy the men that I was named after I would have had to learn from their legacy with them as slain heroes um, and because I was born a girl, the women that I'm named mm. after are women I've been able to in my life to look up to, to see their journey, to see their evolution. Um, I've had conversations with both of them. Um, they both are excited about meeting me one day, you know, and so it is just a different thing when when you're able to see the people that whose names you carry, you're able to see their journey in the world as well and be having it at the same time as yours. Yeah, and I, I think these kind of stories of love and loss uh, uh, kind of in, in, resonate with a lot of, of your work around um, violence in the current time. And, of course, listeners of WBAI may know, but there may be others who don't recognize that name, Patrice Lumumba, who was, I think, the first um, president or one of the first leaders of independent yeah, of Congo. Congo, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, he, who yeah, he was, led the rebellion and revolution, yep. And uh, was murdered, uh, and, uh, you know, in that uh, government was taken over by Mobutu Sese Seko, I think, and there was CIA involvement. There was a really a rich and tragic history. Um, and, uh, but uh, suffice to say that, that that name represented a lot of Pan-African pride and, and aspirations yeah. in that moment in the early 70s. And I think your point of of you know being named after ghosts being versus being named after survivors um yeah. you know the, those things that that you can't control and and that you can't predict but definitely have a lot of meaning so yeah. uh, thank you for sharing all that and i really appreciate you you know sharing a, a lot of personal history um I, I don't take that for granted so I'm, I'm very grateful um for your willingness to do that um and and i think you know even after you were born um I'm I'm a little bit curious. I would like to hear you share uh, some of your youth, youth that formed the person that we know today as Erica Bridgeford. <laughs> so my, I've been. This is crazy because I really have been thinking a lot about this. I'm 50 years old now, and so there's something about 50. I think in general that just makes you process your life experience very deeply, um, and also just a lot of amazing opportunities and awards and you know things have been coming my way just like in the last three or four months and so it's making me really think about how I have become the person that I am and so one thing that's hugely impactful is because my parents were very grounded in social justice work as teenagers, you know, in the way that they even decided to have a baby who was going to contribute to the world in that way it meant that 
they when we had our family dinners growing and I grew up in West Baltimore in poverty and in low income housing. Um, and we had dinner together every Sunday as a family. I'm the um, oldest and only girl of four children that my parents had. And at the dinner table, at the breakfast table, you know, all through while they were coaching my brothers in football and wrestling and track and everything that, that they were doing with us, there were a lot of conversations about having a consciousness in the world and specifically black consciousness as black people because this world and society is set up to target us and try to make sure that we don't know our greatness. Um, there was so much poured into me about my responsibility that if there's something that I feel like is not right in the world, that if I have something in me, something that moves me to want to do something about it, I shouldn't ignore that thing inside of myself and I should surrender and follow and trust that thing inside of me that's calling me forth to do something about it. Um, I'm also a child of Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers and Electric Company and, you know, then Reading Rain came along and all of those kind of shows and so I literally like there was just magic in my world I believe that my nub was a magic wand that could heal things and people I believed in Mr. Snuffleup you know Mr. Snuffleupagus I, I listened to Mr. Rogers when he said be myself and Captain Chesapeake in, in Baltimore it's the same messages and so like a lot of the things that we teach children about being themselves and standing up for what's right and unity and love and all of these things, then as a grown-up world, we don't really apply those things in our everyday life and in policies and in, you know, how things actually, how the world actually flows. And instead, we do the opposite where we beat we tell children be who they are and then constantly tell them they're too much or too little of something that we believe they should be. And my parents didn't do that. My community didn't do that. And so in my neighborhood, I was surrounded by people who my friends, you know, who protected me and stood up for me because the world was mean to me. I, I, I experienced a lot of rejection, a lot of people just my mom said people would just look at me and start sentences with she can't. And when I was even in a stroller, you know, my mother received a lot of the rejection. People looking at me and then looking at her like, you know, and blame. Like, what did she do that she got this broken child, you know? And so, and so like my life has been filled with this, like me loving having one hand and thinking it's so special and that I can, I am just like everybody else. And then living in a world that constantly looked at me like I was broken and that I didn't belong. Um, and then I had a nerve to be very um, playful and fun loving and talked a lot. You know, I was talking when I was five months old and then I never stopped. And so my personality was one that in an ableist culture, People expected me with one hand to kind of be sitting in a corner somewhere. And then as a black girl, absolutely my voice is not supposed to be in conversations and heard. And as a child, your voice shouldn't be in grown-up conversations. You know, like, there was just all of these what I'm not supposed to be doing that I just was naturally <laughs> and was doing. And then at times just felt 
out of place or like people were trying to make me feel like I was out of place. So I had a lot of um, self-esteem battles in my life. In 2004, I tried to kill myself and spent seven days on the psych ward. I still have the scar where I was, you know, just trying to find a vein to cut. Um, and I am really glad my mother found me in front of Baltimore um, Belmont Elementary School in Baltimore that's where I went to elementary school and that's where I went back to to kill myself because that 10 years old was the last time at that in 2004 in my life 10 years old was the last time I could remember fully feeling free to just be everything that I was and I missed that feeling and I felt like this was a bunch of crap and God had some explaining to do so I was going back to have a conversation and I was just done and my mother found me and told me you know look at where you came like this is your foundation this is a place where you learned a lot about community and love and being your best version of yourself and all of those things and it's not your time yet you know, and had I died in 2004, there would I wouldn't be talking to you today from the perspective of what people view as an Afro futuristic superhero. You know, like I would because I just couldn't I knew it was somewhere inside me, but I couldn't get to it. I couldn't. I felt so buried underneath of society's perceptions of me and what people said I couldn't do and where places I shouldn't be. Wow. Um, and I, I think that gives us a sense of this tension, I guess, um, between, you know, what you describe as um, magic and love and a celebration of life on the one hand, and then an environment that was basically hostile and yeah. um, violent um, and threatening. Um, and I don't know if it's too, se too soon or too deep, but I know there's a couple... Um, experiences of violence um within you know w within your family within your community that really kind of resonated yeah. and i think influenced your your trajectory in life do you want to share any no, of those with us too soon. it's not too soon so um when i was 12 that was the first time i um heard gunshots and then like saw somebody dying on the sidewalk it was the middle of the night and i it, it was definitely a time that made me feel completely alone and out of place because <clears throat> i was in middle school at the time and i went to roland park which is not it's in baltimore city but it's just not the same as most of the rest of Baltimore City, you know? And so the, it was very affluent, mostly white people um, living in the Roland Park area. And, and, and Roland Park was a, called a citywide school. So children from all over the city could apply. And if they had good enough grades and everything, go there. So I was at Roland Park. But my zone schools were all, you know, in my neighborhood. And so I was the only person not at my zone not not at a zone school and so um I was in school the next day so I heard him his name was Michael I saw him laying on the sidewalk I heard him saying god please don't let me die please don't let me die as they were putting him in the ambulance so when I went to school the next day I'm worried all day whether or not Michael made it because I could see all of the blood that was on the pavement. And there were times where 
you know, they were trying to get him to, he just wasn't responsive at times. And then he would be, you know, it was just, so it was obvious to me, even at that age that he might not make it. And it was very obvious to me that if I didn't go to Roland Park and I went to Lamel or Calverton, which were my zone schools, I would have absolutely known during the day whether or not my friend survived. And I had to wait until after school to get home on two or three buses to find out that he had died in the not long after they put him in the ambulance. Um, and then in high school, I went to Western High School, which is also a very, you know, it's one of the um, better schools in Baltimore. Um, Probably one of the best high schools in the state. Right. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, and it, um, and, and throughout high school, um, I was one of the only students that I knew who, like, it felt like every time we turned around, I was going to a funeral of one of my friends. And so it was mostly, like, maybe one or two people a year, every year in high school, I was going to to somebody's funeral because they got killed for a variety of reasons and all just around people not knowing how to handle conflict. Um, And then um, in 2001... My, um, one of my three brothers, my middle brother, his name is Pop, he was shot in broad daylight because he had a conflict with one of our homeboys who got mad. My brother does have a smart mouth, you know, and so he embarrassed somebody and it just was the wrong day. And the guy went in the house, got a gun and shot my brother up in broad daylight. He was, um, Dead on arrival at Bonsecur Hospital. He ended up surviving. And that is the way that I ended up becoming a mediator because I had conflict with my boss at the time about how often I was going to the hospital to wait for my brother to wake up. He was in a medically induced coma. Um, And she, she called the community mediation center to come give us conflict management training. And that person who came to give that training was Lori Charcoudian. And she was the executive director at the time at the mediation center. And she recruited me to go through mediation training, which I did later that year in September of 2001. So when planes were here and building Simon, I was going through basic mediation training to learn how to be a mediator. Um, And then in 2005, one of my, so my mom has a sister who had six children, three boys and three girls. So her youngest boy was killed in 2005. Um, And it was the day before my oldest brother's birthday, the brother who's right under me, Corny. And then in 2007, Corny was killed. Um, and then later one of my aunt's other sons, um, was killed. So like, it's just, I can just go on and on about my cousins, my friends. Like there have been years that I have gone, been like in two funerals on one day because of losing so many people. And even since we started the movement and doing sacred space rituals, I've had to do rituals for my loved ones. And, uh, you know, and, and that's kind of what I wanted to get into how this, you know, that tension between love and a celebration of life and an experience of uh, violence um, and loss kind of influenced um, how how we responded to that. Um, and we had Ogun on last week and he talked about how the um, the uh, inspiration for the Baltimore ceasefire, um, the way he tells it anyway, is that he noticed that he wasn't paying attention 
to the conflict in the Middle East unless there was a ceasefire, and then he paid attention. So he wanted to see how can we get people to pay attention um, and care whether or not somebody is killed. Uh, And for people that that are just tuning in, um, we're on Trauma Code on WBAI. I'm Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, uh, a trauma surgeon uh, and activist against violence, and I have on the air uh, one of the founding members of the Baltimore Peace Movement, which started as the Baltimore Ceasefire, uh, Erica Bridgeford. Uh, so do you mind telling us a little bit about uh, how the Baltimore ceasefire um, started and uh, what, it, what it means to you? So when Ogun, so I was a leader in the 300 Men March movement at the time. It was 2015. And so um, by, the, by November of that year, Baltimore reached 300 murders. And the movement, the 300 Men March movement called... Um, a state of emergency community meeting. And Ogun came to that meeting because we had a friend in common. We called, His name was Derek Jones. We called him Ooh. And he had passed away, not from violence, but he had passed away not long before that. And so, like, a lot of people who were connected to him wanted to continue his legacy and his work, and he was involved in the 300 Men March movement. So Ogun had just started coming to some meetings just because of that. So we didn't really know each, we knew of each other at the time, but we didn't really know each other. And so at this meeting, Ogun pulled me to the side and told me about this idea that he had where people all over the city would just ask for peace And that everybody, you know, we would try to get as many people as possible to agree that nobody was going to kill anybody. You know, like just kind of that simple. Um, And he said he just felt like he had been watching my work and he just felt like I was somebody he needs to tell this idea. And I agreed because I was very excited about it. I found out later, we didn't really talk about it until about two years later because my son, who was a teenager at the time, Um, He was an AmeriCorps member working at the Community Mediation Center, and he said that him and his AmeriCorps friends were watching the news earlier that day in May of 2017, and the news was reporting how there was more murder in Baltimore at that time than there had ever been per capita. And so I just was pissed about it. Like, that can't be true. You've been out here doing work all day. I've been doing work all Like, all this work that's happening in Baltimore, how is the murder rate, like, the highest it's ever been? I just, my mind couldn't conceive it. And I was very angry and pointing fingers about what people should be doing and how much people run their mouths and say what connections they have to the street. So if they got those connections, they should just call a ceasefire. Which made me remember the next day that Ogun had already told me this idea he had about a ceasefire and that we just, we never moved on it because we both got busy with our lives. So I reached out to him. In that conversation, I found out that I wasn't the first person he brought this idea to. He brought it to men in Baltimore who were leaders in the anti-violent space who all told him that it was a basically a naive not impactful, wasn't going to quote-unquote work kind of idea, and they basically didn't have time for that, you know, like, and so, and so that's why he brought it to me, um, and I asked, because again, I'm a child of Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, I believe in magic, you know, because I'm a black girl with one hand from West Baltimore, being and doing the impossible all the time, it wouldn't occur to me that something that is in my heart 
wouldn't quote unquote work. For me, if it made one parent, one father, one sister not have to go through what me and my family go through about my brother being killed, about my cousins being killed, if one family doesn't have to go through this, it worked. And so that's what I was riding on. And in my heart, it didn't need to just be one day. Baltimore needed healing. Baltimore needed an opportunity just to celebrate life, to be excited about being here, to be loving on each other, having parties. I thought, so I, I've added the idea of three days and life-affirming events throughout the weekend. And for people to plan for themselves what life-affirming event looked like and just let us know. And we try to tell as many people as possible so people could come to their events. Like, so in my head, Simon, I really thought that it was just going to be like block parties and basketball games, you know, like happening all over the city. And then in that conversation, Ogun is so petty because he was like, yeah, it's going to be a big deal. It's going to blow. And I was like, well, no, it's not, because it's going to take like five years before it becomes a big thing. He was like, you crazy. It's going to blow and blow soon. But I'm telling you now, I'm not going to be the face of it. I'm not doing interviews. I'm not talking. That's all going to be on you. So good luck with that. And I didn't think that he knew what he was talking about. And our goal was really not to have somebody be the face or voice of it, which is why I recruited Ogun and four other people that I trusted, Latrice and Darnell and Shellas and Jakia, for all of us to be what's now the organizing squad. Because I understood it shouldn't just be, you know, as the daughter of a Black Panther, I know what destroys movements. And the one main thing that destroys it is we are all human. And so if you connect a whole movement to one person, whenever you decide that you're displeased with that person, then you suddenly don't want to support really good work that the movement is doing. And we didn't want that to be a thing. And so, you know, I, I wanted from the beginning not to be it like an arc of Bridgeford movement or any one particular organization, but that it was Baltimore city doing it. And that is the reason that it blew up so big and became viral before the weekend even came that August before the first one even came. And, you know, media from all over the country, articles and languages we can't even read, you know, because they're in languages we don't know, you know, like it's just right. the world loves Baltimore. And we found out how much the world wants Baltimore to win by how many organizations, countries, people all over this world reach out to do interviews like this one, to find out about this thing that we did and didn't stop doing going into six years of doing it now in Baltimore. Um, and why don't we get ready to take a, a little musical break? Um, but Erica, when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about what that ceasefire has looked like and what it has grown into. Yep. Right. I got, I got loyalty, got royalty inside my DNA. Corner piece got war and peace inside my DNA. I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA. I got hustle, though, ambition flow inside my DNA. I was born like this, this born like this. Immaculate conception, I transform like this, perform like this. What shells you a new weapon? I don't contemplate, I meditate. Then off your head, this that puts a kiss to bed. This that I got, I got, I got, I got realness. I just kill because it's in my DNA. I got millions, I got riches building in my DNA. I got trouble, some heart inside my DNA. I 
just win again, then win again like Wimbledon I serve. Yeah, that's him again. The sound that engine in is like a bird. You see fireworks and coffee tires skirt the boulevard. I know how you work. I know just who you are. See, use it, use it, use it. Yo, I'm on probably switch inside your DNA. Welcome back to Trauma Code on WBAI. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald on the line with one of the founding members of the Baltimore Peace Movement, uh, which started as the Baltimore Ceasefire, Erica Bridgeford. Uh, and again, I hope you, uh, Erica, excuse my indulgence, that uh, song, I think uh, uh, Cassandra and I were talking, we think you're a Kendrick Lamar fan. It's something oh about... God. I'm just sitting here trying not to scream. The... I'm just, you know, that Kendrick is my heart. I am... I view myself, although he's much younger than me, like I love him so much because he is the me I would be if I was a rapper. And I feel like I'm the him he would be if he was a peace activist. Like, it's just, I love him so much. I'm so proud of him. And something about that song resonates to, uh, with me when I'm thinking about your origin story. So, yes. um, so uh, yes. thank you for, for uh, indulging that. And we're just getting into talking about the Baltimore ceasefire, this peace, peace movement that was uh, started in 2017. Um, so can you tell us what, what did that you know work actually look like once once it, it jumped off? So when, it, when that weekend came, before the weekend is what really blew our minds because when we um, – first met about it in community there were only about 15 people who came to that first meeting that named the movement just to hear this idea that Ogun and I had combined we already knew it was going to be the first Friday through Sunday in August um, and so people came and named it Baltimore Ceasefire with a sister component of Baltimore Peace Challenge for people who would hear ceasefire and say well I wasn't going to shoot anybody anyway you know like that we wanted people to really be intentional, but are you being as peaceful as you can possibly be? You know, and challenges have become the ice bucket challenge and, you know, all kind of challenges have become the thing that people latched onto. And being peaceful is a freaking challenge. When my brother was killed, I absolutely plotted to have him killed. And what I cried about was not that decision. I cried over the decision not to do it. Because peace really is a challenge. When you feel helpless, when you feel like you don't have any other options but violence, choosing peace seems like it's so far in the distance that you cannot reach it. And so it's something you have to move move toward very purposefully and choose purposefully and then consistently because we get good at what we practice. And so... Um, we added the, it got named Baltimore Ceasefire and Baltimore Peace Challenge. And so one of the things we did was made um, a press release to send out to all of the media who everybody except um, the uh, Afro um, and Sean Yost on WEAA, Morgan's uh, University Radio. And Sean was also an, a major editor at the Afro too. And so because of his influence in both of those spaces, these were the only two media outlets who did not tell us this wasn't news. Everybody else said, oh yeah, we'll contact you after the first, you know, after the weekend happens and see how it goes because that's what will make it news. But they wouldn't talk about, they said anyway, they, it wasn't news before then. And so we said okay and people from all over the 
city came and picked up the free flyers and posters, put the messaging. We just vandalized <laughs> the city with ceasefire posters and flyers, gave them out to everybody everywhere, talked to people about what do you need in order to be peaceful, you know, so that people, we could help connect each other to resources that we needed and all of that kind of stuff. And what ended up happening was there were news people who in their daily drive through Baltimore were starting to see ceasefire posters everywhere they went. And so that made them like, wait a minute, what is this thing and who's behind it? And so they found us. Um, the Baltimore Sun interviewed me. And unbeknownst to me at the time, they ended up putting the story on the front page. So I was my picture was front page above the fold. I didn't even know above the fold was a thing, Simon. So I wasn't as impressed as I should have been <laughs> until people started contacting me the next day, telling me that it had broke Reddit and it went viral and it was breaking the internet everywhere. And like just this thing that Baltimore was going to do. So that was like July and the ceasefire weekend wasn't until August. And so when the weekend came, Media from everywhere descended on this city. And when that, that rally, the opening rally that community members in Emerson Village um, put together that have, has been a staple of the movement every Friday when we have one of these weekends, that first one, I will never forget, it was burning up hot outside that day on August 4th. And up the block, like on a particular, on the block, the intersecting street of Edmondson Avenue, that street had news cameras lined up a block long, and I had to go from camera to, like they were just literally lined up waiting their turn, and I had to go from camera to camera to camera to camera. And then there was this guy who had been shot in the face a few days before, and he was literally just being released from the hospital, and he had seen it on the news and then happened to have to drive past the rally on his way home. He still had his hospital, like, clothes on, and he circled the block and came back with his face still bandages all over it and grabbed the poster and got out in the intersection and was giving people flies like it was just like it was people and, and because so at that point in, in Baltimore people were being killed every 19 hours so in our mind if we hit 19 hours in one minute something amazing has just happened in Baltimore you know and so when we went 24 hours and then into the next day, like, and people were online talking about how the air just felt different in Baltimore and they didn't hear um, ambulance sirens in their neighborhood and people, everybody like around the world, people had changed their profile picture to the ceasefire logo for the weekend. It just was like, I could not have imagined what was going to happen. And um, then the... The, what, the yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say I think well in in the interest of time eventually there you know yeah. someone was uh, killed during that weekend yes yeah, yeah and yeah, I yeah. think the response I don't know if that was planned or spontaneous but it became really a fundamental part of how ceasefire um, engaged with violence in the city was what yeah, you mentioned so it was planned that we were gonna we, we knew that if somebody got killed we were going to go to the space where it happened and bless the space, pour love and light into the space, and that we were going to do our best to find the family and give them 
money and any other resources we could connect them with. And so people donated from all over the world so that we could do that. Um, but that rich, it had that, that, so what you're, you're talking about, like what became sacred space rituals. And I had no idea that's a thing that was going to start happening throughout the year. At the time, it was just a thing that I knew we were going to do if somebody got killed during the weekend. But it occurred to me that Baltimore needed that kind of blessing often and as much as possible when somebody was killed and that these spaces should be sacred ground. And so I started just by the November one. After that, I, t I already told the squad before the November ceasefire came that I just want y'all to know after this one, I'm going to show up to as many murder spots as I absolutely can. And I'm glad I did too, Simon, because that's how I met you. Well, that really, that, that um, ritual really resonated with me because I always kind of fantasize, not the right word, but I always imagined that that was something that, that I could do was engage in those spaces. Um yeah. But it really took stepping out of my comfort zone, and I didn't feel like that was something I could do until you kind of invited me into that space. Um, and you know, in the interest of time, um, you know, a couple after a couple of years of doing the ceasefire every quarter, right? Um, mm -hmm. That three-day weekend, four times a year, really moving intentionally to celebrate life and end violence. Um, a researcher in Baltimore, and I mentioned this last week, um, Peter Phelan looked at the police data on shootings and was able to really convincingly demonstrate that shootings were down about 50% during those ceasefire weekends, um, you know, across the city over a two-year period. And I'm really convinced that there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. It's going to be impossible to prove what it was. But that yeah. the way that you and that ceasefire engaged in those spaces and those communities where violence was happening, particularly with that sacred space ritual, was really important in changing... Um, the energy that came out of that violence and that response yeah. to it. Yeah, it was really a part of our goal from the beginning. I wanted to shift the culture around the way people talked about my city and around how people acted when they heard that somebody got killed. Um, and, and that like just the way we respond when murder happens, that it's not knocking the wind out of us and making us feel like it's just hopeless and there's nothing we could do. And that's a journey for me even still because it was just last year that I did my I had my own awakening around how much I believed that murder took my brother from me. Like in that he was a thing that I really couldn't so I would, I still commune with my brother, you know, in, in the spirit realm, but there was still some guilt attached to, we weren't, we were speaking when he got killed, but we weren't as close as we had been because we'd had a conflict, not before, not long before he got killed. And so I thought I had time for us to get back right. And he got killed before we got all the way back the way we used to be. And I was carrying that guilt with me up until last year because I believed that murder took my chance to, for me and my brother to have a forgiveness space between us the, the way that I wanted to. And then, like, I ended up realizing that that just wasn't, it just simply wasn't true. That not only did I not lose him, but when he's now not limited by human flesh, he's now more able to be with me more than he ever was in his body. And so that message, even when I'm now having fam 
conversations with families. I always am careful when I ask what I should say and what I shouldn't say. I really follow my heart and my spirit. I don't just say everything to everybody. But I've been able to say a lot more to families in their grief when they're using language like that person is taken from them and they took, you know, they just snatched so-and-so from me. Yeah, the body, absolutely. That's a whole, you, you can't touch, you can't hug, you can't smell, you can't hear the voice again. But to say that you lost the person is a level of horror that murder energy wants us to feel because it is a lie. And that, for me, is the biggest part of why I continue to do this work for us to feel our power for us to reach for the magic and the eternal power in the non-physical realm because we are way more non-physical than we are physical even if you just think about it from a, how many thoughts you have that are unseen right that you will never verbalize out loud just you know in your mind it must be a more vast place than your body is you know and so I want us to to, to lean into the power of like the what we are, not necessarily only limited by the who society says we are part. And we only have a couple more minutes, but there's two points that I really want to touch on. And one has to do with, you know, we talk about continuing this work, um, which does continue, but it's no longer Baltimore ceasefire, right? It's yes. now um, under the umbrella of the Baltimore peace movement. Why, do you, why was it important to, to change how we think about this work? Well, I woke up one day with the thought, what if murder is not the problem? What if the way we look at murder is the problem? And that was a thought that like literally shook me to my roots. And I ended up realizing that it was a very literal. It's literally how much we look at violence, how much we look at murder, how much attention we give it. And in a place like Baltimore, for example, the conversation happens as if that's all that happens in Baltimore. If you watch the news, it just looks like it's mostly violent. And the way that you can tell that somebody didn't get killed in Baltimore today is because they start reporting on murders that happen other places, in other states, and other counties. And so it's like, so we just can't, so if nobody got killed or even shot in Baltimore today, how come we couldn't have news that was just all about the good stuff that happened in Baltimore? Like, how come we couldn't do that? And so it occurred to me, that because when so when you focus on what you don't want you experience manifesting more of what you don't want or struggling with what you don't want in your physical reality and when you focus on what you are for and what you do want you manifest more of that in your physical reality and so we just shifted what we look at so it's not that we ignore that murder is happening right but we but what i want for myself personally First, before I want it for anybody else in Baltimore, is I don't want to be so traumatized by what happens with violence and murder because I'm the person very often that gets called on in those spaces. So if I show up just as traumatized as the family, I'm no help to them. I'm not in the vibration of answers that they need and comfort and healing that they need. And that's the space I want to be in. And so I, we, we just focus on, well, how much peace is in Baltimore? And how can we nurture that peace? How much love? What can, what can we uplift in Baltimore? And that way, when the horrors do happen, and we show up from a space knowing that we all have peace inside of us that we can lean into, that makes us even more impactful and more helpful when the when the traumas and, and, and horrors do do happen. And so 
that's the goal of calling it a peace movement is because it's been a peace movement from the very beginning. But when you focus on it from an anti-violence perspective, you're giving violence more power than you're giving peace the credit and the power that it actually has and that we all actually are. In the first place, in Baltimore, you run across more people trying not to punch you in your face every day than you run across people waiting to shoot you. Um, and, and, you know, I, as I've said, I've been um, very grateful to be part of this peace movement and, and to um, be able to participate in the spiritual infrastructure that you've put into place. Um, and, and even though that the challenges remain and, and violence uh, across the country, not only in, in Baltimore, is... Um, way too prevalent, um, way too much a part of our lives. Um, And one of the things that when you and I spoke about coming on the radio um, for a New York audience, you had mentioned that there's some uh, work that you've been involved with nationally um, in supporting um, families and survivors um, for peace workers who've who've been uh, victims or survivors of violence. Um, Do you want to talk about that at all? Absolutely. So... Um, one of our so cure violence is a national model that most a lot of people know that that term and that um, model. In Baltimore, the cure violence model is used in what we call safe streets. And so, one of our safe streets workers um, named Dante Boxdale, we call them Tata, was killed a few years ago. And when he was killed. Anti-violence workers all over the country got on the Zoom together just to support each other. And in that conversation, one of the guys suggested, like, this families of peop- of us shouldn't have to worry about how to bury us if we got get taken away by the very thing we were trying to stop. And everybody was like, yeah, that's right, you know. <laughs> And so, but nobody like really thought about how to move forward with it. So I just took responsibility for trying to find a way to actually do that, to have a pot of money that if an anti-violence worker gets killed by violence, that there's a pot of money that their loved ones, their close family members um, can reach out and say, hey, we need some support. And so um, it is called, um, it did not get named after, um, after Tata, it get, there was another Safe Streets worker who got killed after about a year or so, I think, um, after him. And so it is um, uh, named the Kenyell Benny Wilson um, Warrior Fund. And the Community Mediation Center holds it, so we have it as a separate bank account from our regular money. And so people can make donations to Community Mediation Program, Inc., and but say that it is for the warrior fund and that is the the pot of money that we're holding and so we've been able to give some money to families um when they have lost their anti-violence warriors to violence um and that's something um you and i will have to stay in contact about long term because i think that's um, very valuable and something i'd like to support but definitely any of our listeners who are interested in supporting the Kenyo Benny Wilson Warriors uh, Fund to support families of, of violence workers who have been killed in the line of duty, basically, um, then yeah. definitely um, we'll have some information on how to how reach out and follow up on that. Yeah, um, I- and the only other thing, we're, we're almost in our last minute, but the one other thing since we talked about Dante Dater, uh, Tater Barksdale, uh, a famous mm-hmm. name for people who've watched The Wire, um, he... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fortunately, was able to finish his autobiography and self-publish that. 
um, before he passed away called Growing Up Barksdale. Um, and it's definitely a compelling read. So I, I encourage all of my audience to go out and look up Growing Up Barksdale to read more about uh, Dante Tater Barksdale. Yeah. So, um, Erica, I, I think we might have to leave it there. I want to thank you very much for making the time. Uh, as well as uh, for inviting me into all of those spaces and all the work that you've done. And I've been very grateful to to build this relationship with you. It's, it's great to hear from you, and I look forward to seeing you in Baltimore. And for our audience, you've been listening to Trauma Code on WBAI. Dear Baltimore, let's talk about your strength. Let's talk about how you rise. When everybody thinks you're down for the count, let's talk about how you rise. Rise like that time my brother was on crack and my parents would search the streets looking for him. And sometimes he would run. But that one time, one time I found him and he almost ran and I begged him not to and I reminded him that I'd been at my bottom too that I'd seen the crevices of my gutter too and having come up out of it there was no way I was gonna leave him rise like how he promised me he would meet me later that afternoon and let me take him to our parents rise like how I promised him I'd be standing on that corner until he returned and he left to go get that last hit Rise like the joy in my soul when I saw his frail, cracked, devoured body coming over the hill to let his sister take him home. So rise like that time I realized that I actually love having one hand and I learned to kiss my nub every single day. Rise like the glimmer of excitement in children's eyes when somebody opens the fire hydrant on a hot summer day. I'm saying it like it's easy when I know it's hard, when I know what's been done to you, when I know how they still neglect you, but I know you, you made me. I know that it looks so dark all around you, open your eyes anyway, they are the lamps in the darkness. Your vision can shine away the dark corners around you of you, in you, healing you. Rise like that time I sat down to write you this letter. Whether you feel like it or not, feel worthy or not, broken or whole, rise to your soul's calling, yearning, knowing, Knowing that you are not other people's perception of you With your name on their lips and your greatness far from their understanding Rise because you know only you can save you Rise like that time we spent a week singing, dancing And praying at North and Penn With cameras all around waiting for us to blow up again All the while we were strategizing how to know us within Rise like that time since 2014 we had 11 and a half days of no murder. Rise like the people who convinced each other not to break that streak. See, you are worth standing in the gap for, going to war for, demanding peace for. Let's talk about your strength. Let's talk about your resilience. 
Let's talk about how you rise time and time again. Dear Baltimore, not only do you have rise in you, rise is you. Thanks for joining us on Trauma Code. That was Erica Bridgeford of the Baltimore Peace Movement. Uh, and that uh, last piece that you heard was a collaboration between Erica Bridgeford and Judah Adashi called uh, Dear or Invocation, Dear Baltimore. And you, of course, have been listening to Trauma Code on WBAI. And you can listen to our archives on uh, WBAI archives for the show Trauma Code or wherever you find your podcast under Trauma Code. And if you're listening to us as a podcast, go ahead and uh, like or rate or subscribe in whatever uh, podcast medium you prefer. Uh, and you may have noticed uh, a reference of Erica to a previous interview uh, on uh, Knife at the Gunfight. That's the name of that podcast. And you can find us on social media under the handle Trauma Code WBAI. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, and if you listen to us on the, the radio, you may have noticed a different uh, song we finished with uh, by Ab Rock called Ain't Yours. So we'll finish with that now. Thanks again for joining us. In one U.S. city, Baltimore's only 50 kilometers from the capital, are calling right now for a truce. Why? Well, they're sickened by the skyrocketing level of gun violence. When the temp go up, the heat coming out. Summertime, cats in the street, straight dumbing out. And stay shooting from sun up to sundown. All we're trying to do is get you to put the guns down. And just walk it off, better yet, talk it out. Before the yellow tape of crime scenes, chalk it out. Because when they lay in the hearse, ain't no reversing it. Your hands stay tall, got a permanent cursing at the worst of it. We stay killing our own, filling our phone with bullets for cats who live in our zone. It's like we urban savages trapped in a zoo. City ain't no more, it could happen to you and pride. Got riding in a coffin, egos got babies, surviving as orphans. Anger got mothers at funerals, crying often. Preachers at the pulpit, trying to soften. The pain fell when the heart get heavy, cause the land getting deadly when your man's getting buried over beef that's stupid, pointless. We're raising money today for the tower fund here at WBAI. And without that tower, we can't stay on the air. Please just give what you can. And those contributions can be small or they can be large, but those are the contributions that we need to make in order to beat back the other side. No one is going to do it for us. Even a few dollars a month helps to keep us on the air. Let's face it, without Pacifica, what do you have? NPR is two milk toes. PBS, two milk toes. Without Pacifica, we're dead in the water. And that pledge line is 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. And we're only asking those who can give it, those who can afford it. We know that there's some people out there who cannot afford it, and that's one of the problems. Those of us who relatively have must stand up for those who have not. I'm sick and tired of hearing people complain about, well, you know, the right wing has Fox News and, and they have this and they have that. The oppressor always has more money than the oppressed. We have to make use of the resources that we have. We have people and we have people that can make contributions. Here on WBAI 99.5 FM, we want to have the tower 
fun, strong, and healthy, so we're not worried about it. 212-209-2950. Or you can go online at WBAI.org and donate to the Tower Fund. Hi there, I'm Max Schmid, staff representative on the WBAI local station board, inviting you to attend our next LSB meeting Wednesday, March 8th at 7 p.m. It will be held on Zoom, and it includes an opportunity for public comment. The fastest and easiest way to join the meeting is by using the link on the Pacifica calendar at kpftx.org or on the lower left-hand corner of the WBAI website, wbai.org. Just go to the red square labeled Meetings. You can also access the meeting on your phone by calling 929-205-6099. Again, that's 929-205-6099 and entering the meeting ID, 922-457. Two nine nine five again. The meeting ID nine two two four five seven two nine nine five, and the password is nine nine five. Like our frequency ninety nine point five, so it's nine nine five nine nine five nine nine. Do you have to contribute to WBAI to access the meeting? No, but we sure hope that you do. And by the way, for $15 or more, you can become a BAI buddy this Women's History Month in the name of your favorite WBAI show. And you'll receive our Women's History Collection. Just go to give2wbai.org and click on Buddy. Or please call 212-209-2950 and say, I want to become a BAI buddy to help fund listener-sponsored WBAI radio. That's 212-209-2950. And remember the next LSB meeting.